DNA testing. It seems like everyone is doing it. People are finding concrete links to their heritage. They're locating relatives that they didn't even know they had. And they're able to get a real sense of the countries, the towns, and even pinpoint the very communities that they came from. The results can be really surprising. In a similar way, the history of the foods we eat, well, it surprises me. Old cookbooks, recipes handed down through generations, newspaper clippings, all of these things can offer clues and records as to the origins of the family recipes that we cook. But what happens when the records are lost or they just don't go back far enough? For today's story, we go on a journey. A physical one across nations, but also a journey back in time. Today's story is about family, culture, food, and knowing where you came from. From America's Test Kitchen, I'm Bridget Lancaster, and this is Proof. At OXO, no design detail is too small. Take, for example, their stainless steel measuring cups and spoons. Category director Francoise Viello explains. Okay, how do people generally tend to store these things? And so we added magnets instead of just your basic ring, which frustrates a lot of people. The other thing that people really rely on is just really robust measurement markings. And so we made sure that we had those laser etched. And so when you think about something that's as basic as that, and you're like, how could you get yourself wound up by something that's so sort of minor in the world of kitchenware. Um, it's because we're so particular about all the, the elements. Get particular about your kitchen tools. Shop all products at OXO.com. That's OXO.com. OXO, better guaranteed. Hey, thanks to our presenting sponsor, Bob's Red Mill. Stay tuned at the break for their quiz. I grew up in Houston, but my parents are from Louisiana. So needless to say, I grew up eating jambalaya. This is producer Kayla Stewart. We ate it when there were family events or holidays, usually the same week we had gumbo, since we'd have leftover ingredients that were perfect for jambalaya. Now, jambalaya is a very Louisiana dish. It's an earthy tomatoey rice dish, and it's got lots of vegetables, seafood, and dewy sausage all packed in it. And it uses what's known as the Holy Trinity. And in Cajun and Creole cooking, that means onion, celery, and green bell pepper. I mean, it's basically the quintessential Creole food. So I think because of that, it's always been assumed that jambalaya comes from Spanish and French food. And that idea makes sense. Louisiana was colonized by both the Spanish and the French before the Louisiana Purchase in 1803. And the Louisiana-born descendants of these French and Spanish colonizers, or even enslaved Africans, they ultimately form this group, the Creole people. So it would make sense that jambalaya would evolve out of French and Spanish culinary traditions. But there's also a theory that's popped up in recent years that jambalaya is a dish enslaved people created based on their African culinary traditions. There's a theory that jambalaya is actually a descendant of West African jollof rice. 
Jollof rice is also a one-pot rice dish. It has spices and tomato paste. It's got vegetables and meat or seafood in there. It looks an awful lot like jambalaya. It has numerous iterations across West Africa, but it's really popular in Ghana and Nigeria, where they have their own unique versions. It's actually a point of national pride or contention. There's this ongoing battle over who has the best jollof. Now, anybody who knows me knows that I have this thing where I always need to know where names and words come from. And jollof, it comes from the Wolof Empire of Senegal. And in Senegal, there's a dish called chebujen, which is a red rice and fish dish. So the idea is that neighboring nations developed a similar dish to this chebujen and named it jollof after its origin. I remember the first time I went to Ghana a few years ago and ate jollof rice for the first time. I remember eating it and immediately thinking of my mom's jambalaya. There are some distinctions, of course. Ghanaians add some African spices to jollof, but you've got that rich, tomatoey, long-grain rice with vegetables and seafood. Kayla, okay, I'm going to play devil's advocate here. I know that there are a lot of one-pot rice dishes with meat or seafood and vegetables from all over the world. There's paella, you have cazuela de arroz, you have biryani. You're totally right, Bridget. But there was something that was just so specific about jollof. I mean, when I first tasted the dish, I immediately recognized this deep tomato flavor that was just merged and blended so effortlessly with the rice. And not just that, there was also this seasoning that was used that I just felt was so similar to jambalaya. To be honest, there's something that I can't really put my finger on that was there, too. It's like this innate feeling that these dishes were somehow connected, this familiarity that hadn't really been defined yet. And I wanted to find out why. But you're right. There are a lot of similar dishes. And when I went to investigate further... I noticed nobody had actually explained how jambalaya is linked to jollof. They say there are connections, but what are they exactly? And it hung over me like this long, unresolved question. Jambalaya was first spotted in an 1849 magazine, just 14 years before Abraham Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation. The recipe was found in the American Agriculturalist, in an article written by a white man named Solon Robinson about his recent trip to Alabama. There are no tomatoes in his recipe, and he also incorrectly refers to it as Hoppenjohn. After emancipation in 1863, we see more cookbooks authored by African Americans. In 1881, a book called What Mrs. Fisher Knows About Old Southern Cooking published a dish called Jumberly that looks a lot like our jambalaya. But where was jambalaya before that? I wanted to see if I could find out. I wanted to see if I could definitely trace jambalaya back to its roots in West Africa. I don't know much about my family's history. My closest ancestors are from Louisiana, but I know that my family was enslaved in the Carolinas. One of my maternal grandparents descends from a region in the Democratic Republic of Congo, but I don't know much about my ancestral history beyond that. I am fascinated by lineage. I think it's something I get from my mom. Hey, mom. Hi, Kayla. <laughs> Can you say your name for those that don't know you? My name is Evelyn Burrell Stewart. I wanted to talk to my mom for this story. 
Not only is she my first contact with Jambalaya, but she also has encouraged me to always ask questions. She's proud that my career revolves around asking these questions, but she didn't exactly expect to be on the other end of my microphone. She's totally nervous. It's her first time being interviewed for an audio piece, so she's anxious about wanting to do things just right. But I guess one of the most memorable, I'm sorry, pause. You gotta restate that question, take that part out. My mom is a character. She's a retired educator, and in her 20s, she actually became the first black teacher at a Crowley, Louisiana high school. She's a history nerd, and she's always really valued the idea of everybody knowing their own history and being connected to their culture. This is something we've actually bonded over. We used to watch old movies together about famous Black people and make trips to the museum district in Houston to learn about faraway places and our own connections to them. And I put the red in for color, and then I add yellow for added color. In addition to color, more importantly, and putting those peppers in because those are the vegetables that our bodies need each day. She's cooking me jambalaya. She's an organized cook. Veggies are diced and the protein is ready for prep. She knows the recipe like the back of her hand, and she moves through it like it's instinct. Of course, the queen of them all would be your rice. And I like a long-grain rice just because it seems to cook for me. It seems to cook better. uh, My grandmother taught my mom how to make jambalaya, and her mom taught her. I'll go back as far as I can go, which would be my mother's time. She's 97, born during the Great Depression. I actually remember my grandmother talking about the Great Depression. She used to say, you couldn't rub two pennies together. The Depression hit extremely hard for a black child growing up in the rural South at that time. And for her, jambalaya wasn't a celebratory meal. It was sustenance. And she talked a lot about how difficult life was during that time, but how people were able to, in fact, survive. And they survived because they knew how to use the land, and from those things they did not waste, but they used efficiently. So That was part of the narrative my mother heard growing up. You make do with what you have. And that is the essence of jambalaya. Uh, Because we are descendants of African groups and tribes, we had to have brought some things with us. And what better thing could you bring than your food or your memory of foods? And so when you got to America, I'm sure that my ancestors, your ancestors, probably figured, hey, we can do some of the same things that we did back home. We we may need to alter it, change it a little bit here and there. But it's basically, I believe, the same foods that were brought over. I think a lot of Black people think this way about our connection to our African ancestry. In probablys and maybes, we know that there are cultural connections to West Africa, in our dance, in the ways we communicate, and, of course, in our own food. But we don't always know what they are. Oftentimes, we're making our educated guesses on various pieces of history, but also from our own instincts. But we can't always place it. That's the way the diaspora works. So I'm getting ready to go to Ghana. It's 2019, which is 400 years after the first slave ship arrived in Jamestown, Virginia. 
The president of Ghana, Nana Akufuado, marked the anniversary by announcing 2019 as the year of return and inviting diaspora members to return home. Preparing for this trip to Ghana was a little heavy for me. I love Ghana. I'd been before, so I was excited to return. But I was also eager to return to Africa on a personal level to try and forge connections that were stripped during the slave trade. When I landed in Accra, Ghana's capital city, it felt like a sort of homecoming. Everything is familiar. The city is massive and is somehow even more incredible and vibrant than when I left it. Everyone's eating, dancing, and cars are unsurprisingly almost on top of each other, making their own unique melody. Black American visitors like myself are soaking it all in, exploring Ghana, some for the first time, during this monumental year of return. We're crowding popular tourist destinations like the beautiful, albeit infamous, Cape Coast region. I begin where anyone has to when investigating matters of the diaspora. The Cape Coast and Elmina Castle sit on Ghana's southern coast. Installed by European colonists, they are what make Ghana especially important in the history of the transatlantic slave trade. The castles are a popular tourist destination, but they're infamous to say the least. To put it quite bluntly, they're the largest and most well-preserved slave torture chambers in West Africa. The dungeons we are going to see alone this afternoon had the capacity to hold 1,300 enslaved Africans at one time. There were always 1,000 men and 300 women. They were here two weeks minimum, maximum three months. It depends on their ships. The castles were occupied by the Dutch, the Swedes, and various other European groups, and ultimately the British. But both castles held African enslaved people before they were migrated by force. So they'll bring us here, they'll lock the three doors. They won't give them food, no water, no light, then they died. So this is a death cell, condemned cell. I'd been to these castles before. And I understand this is centuries-old history. But the wounds of seeing them in person feel fresh once again. It's disturbing to confront the barbaric treatment the enslaved people went through. And it's frustrating that our world has yet to make peace with the atrocities. But being there helped me remember why it's so important to seek the journeys of dishes like jambalaya and jollof. I want to know who those enslaved people were, And I want to know what cultural knowledge they were able to transfer that allowed Black American identity to emerge and thrive. But obviously, it's basically impossible to read the minds of people from 400 years ago. But what I can do is learn about Jolof and what it means to Ghanaian people. Okay, so we have long green rice, some tomatoes, some lamb. That's George Frederick Oje, who goes by Chef Kiko or Keeks. He's a 20-something software engineer turned cook who hosts food pop-ups in the heart of Accra. He proudly descends from the Gaadangbe people in the greater Accra region and eats and cooks jollof pretty regularly. We met in an outdoor kitchen, which also happened to be really close to a mosque. I helped unpack amidst the afternoon prayer. I start with the lamb. I season with uh, soy sauce, mm. 
and a little sugar, a little salt. His jollof rice recipe starts out just like jambalaya by cooking the protein. Kiko is making jollof with lamb, which is a little less gamey than the traditional goat. He seasons the meat and starts by steaming it in a skillet before adding oil to brown. Just want to point out that that smells very good. <laughs> it smells amazing already. We're not even halfway in the recipe. <laughs> then he blends the tomatoes with the aromatics, in this case, habaneros, garlic, red onion, and green onion, and adds the mixture to the lamb to create a stew, scraping down all the lamb's fond. The stew mixture bubbles away for a while, deepening in flavor until the rice finally goes in. So I'm adding my rice now. The way Kiko talks about jollof reminds me of my own grandmother and mom. Both of them saw jambalaya as this dish that was fairly easy to make. But they also saw it as something that had a bigger significance in a family. Kiko sees the parallels, too. I I read a lot of recipes on jambalaya, and I've done jollof so many times. I realized they are one in the same. The only difference is... um, when the slaves went to America and they were trying to recreate the food they know how to eat here, they had to use what they had there. Caleb, what were you feeling at this point? I mean, were you at all disappointed or did you feel like you were just going down the wrong path? I felt a mix of things, Bridget. I mean, on the one hand, I'd been able to have this incredible experience during this really momentous year and explore a question that I'd been curious about for a very long time, which I think is a really great thing. On the other hand, yes, I was definitely feeling disappointed, aimless, and a little frustrated. I made this huge trip, and I thought that I was going to find these really clear, concrete answers. But the fact of the matter is, is that the story is a little bit more complicated than that. After the break, Kayla returns from Ghana, but her journey isn't over yet. It's time for another Bob's Red Mill Grain Quiz, and let's test managing editor and my colleague, Mari Levine's grain knowledge. Hey, Mari. Hi, Bridget. All right, Mari, you celebrate Hanukkah, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Are there special jelly donuts made for the occasion? I think I've heard about them. There are. They're called Sufganiot. Mm, okay. Well, let's say that you had a relative who told you at the very last minute that they're eating gluten-free. So this is an open-ended question. Would you be able to make those donuts? Ooh, donuts are tricky because the texture is so important. So I don't think something like almond flour would work because it would make really dense donuts. I can't think of anything. I'd have to tell that relative that they're out of luck. (laughs) You're so harsh and cruel, but I I love it. Okay, well, with Bob's Red Mill's one-to-one gluten-free baking flour, you can make jelly donuts that everyone can enjoy. Use it just as you would regular flour to get all of the same effects. For more information and a ton of delicious recipes, go to bobsredmill.com. Is your kitchen faucet smart? Well, the Sensate faucet with Kohler Connect is. Your voice commands it to turn on and off. You can have it dispense a precise volume of water from a cup to gallons or a preset amount for your water bottle or coffee pot. All hands-free. 
The Sense8 Smart Faucet is compatible with Amazon Alexa, Google Home, and Apple HomeKit. And the Kohler Connect app lets you monitor water usage by the week, month, or year. It also tells you if there's a leak. You tell that faucet what to do. Kohler, for people who do their best work in the kitchen. Learn more at Kohler.com. Sure, everyone knows that sous vide is great for cooking steak and eggs, but it can do so much more. And that's why Chef Steps created the Jewel. I went into the test kitchen to find out what my colleagues do with theirs. This roast beef that we have, we set it to a really low temperature and we let it go overnight. The collagen breaks down, the meat gets super, super tender. Basically prime rib, but a quarter of the price. Polenta grits, normally that's a very hands-on dish. You have to like stir it a lot. Sous vide is pretty cool for it because it's hands-off. I actually have a couple of things in the sous vide bath right now, this very moment as we speak. Jewel, perfect food every time. To get yours, visit chefsteps.com slash jewel and use code ATK2019 to get $15 off. That's chefsteps.com slash J-O-U-L-E, code ATK2019. America's Test Kitchen Kids just launched a cooking club for young chefs. Now stay tuned at the end of this episode for a preview of our new subscription box program, The Young Chefs Club, plus a discount code. Before the break, Kayla took a trip to Ghana to seek connections between jambalaya and jollof rice. As my visit to Ghana comes to an end and I board the plane back to New York, I immediately realize I have a ton of research to do. And to be honest, I'm not quite sure where to begin. I call up culinary historian Dr. Jessica B. Harris for some help. She's an expert in foodways of the diaspora. If anybody can give me some guidance, it's her. Hey, Kayla, how are you? So I explain my project, I tell her what I'm trying to do, and she immediately bursts my bubble. It doesn't necessarily mean that there is a direct link where you can say this came from that and that came from that and that came from the other. That doesn't exist. And more often than not, that really doesn't even exist with recipe, even written ones, although it's a whole lot easier to trace with written ones. She tells me recipes are hard to trace. No, she didn't even say that. She said essentially, it's impossible. It turns out recipes, especially in colonized Africa, are oral traditions. They weren't typically written down. And even with recipes that are written down, tracing a line, finding this sort of cause and effect, it's not easy to do. So she gave me some advice. She said, we have to focus on things we can trace. It was stuff that was considered commodity, and the people were taxable, so people kept records. There's a common misconception that the slave trade creates this black hole that swallows up information and poof, it's gone. That's actually not true. If you consider enslaved people in the way that slave owners did at the time, not as people, but as commodities, things that are owned, things that are financially relevant to literate record keepers, there will be records kept. I mean, there's something called the transatlantic slave trade database. It tells you what ships came from where and where they ended up. 
Dr. Harris says we know a lot about the slave trade from the transatlantic slave trade database. And one of the things we know is that ships from Ghana that theoretically would have carried Ghanaians, people from the Ashanti, the Fante, and the Akan tribes ended up in... Jamaica, where you don't really find that Joe Love Rice thing in the same kind of way. And the enslaved people who ended up in the Deep South... Came from the Gulf of Benin and from the Senegambia region, not from Ghana. There's no absolute about any of this. Senegambia, which would include modern-day Senegal. This strikes me as good news. It seems consistent that jambalaya could have come from Africa by way of jollof rice and chebuchen. I mean, jambalaya coming from jollof rice as jollof rice comes from chebuchen. So jambalaya coming from chebuchen, perhaps. But to my knowledge, no food historian has gone into, in a deep dive, those records. But, you know, that's part of what will then begin to tell some of the story. There are still a lot of questions that need to be answered. And it's looking like it'll be an uphill climb. Clearly, it's a culinary trope. But the question becomes then what, then how, then where, then why, and uh, I don't know. I don't think anybody does. The Transatlantic Slave Ship Database is an incredible database that organizes all known records of slave ships. And it's a pretty new body of work, having launched online in 2008. And it's already making an impact in our understanding of the slave trade. The impression that slavery basically erased our lineage, that's not quite right. The records have always been there. There just hasn't been this strong will to research and document the history of African Americans and the diaspora until really the last few decades. At least not with the backing of institutional research forces like museums and universities. So I dive into the Transatlantic Slave Ship Database, and I refine the search criteria to... Principal destination, Gulf Coast of the United States. There are about 50 results. That's 50 voyages from Africa to the Gulf Coast. The first record we have is a ship named the Aurora. The Aurora. Vessel owner, Delacora Vu. It's a French vessel. Voyage completed as intended. The Aurora left the French city of St. Malo on July 1st, 1718 sailed to Cape Lahoe, where it picked up its first purchase of enslaved people on August 28, 1718. The Aurora then sailed into Waida, a coastal town in Benin. On June 1, 1719, exactly 11 months after the date it departed France, the 200 enslaved people disembarked the ship in French-occupied Louisiana. The records go on like this in incredible detail. Throughout the 1720s, the French bring seven ships to transport enslaved people from Goree, an island off the coast of Senegal. Then, after the Louisiana Purchase, the English bring more ships to the colonies, mostly from the Congo, until the slave trade was outlawed eventually in 1807. Even then, a few illegal ships trickle in, up until about 1860, and that's 53 years after the slave trade was outlawed. But not all slave ships came from Africa directly. In fact, most did not. 
the majority of the ships went to the Caribbean. Enslaved people either remained there or were further traded to North America. If I change the criteria and look for ships that came to the Gulf Coast, not from Africa, but from the Caribbean... Huh. 179 results. I immediately begin to notice a trend. Many of the voyages begin in... Jamaica. Kingston? Kingston, Jamaica? Port unspecified. Which Dr. Harris told me is where many of the Ashanti, Fante, and Akan people from Ghana were taken. In the interest of being diligent, I wanted to know where the enslaved people from the Jamaican ships may have come from. Let's search for principal destination Jamaica and see how many results. And there are... 3,591 voyages listed. And as I began to scroll through the results... Principal place of purchase. Cape Coast Castle. Cape Coast Castle. Elmina. Cape Coast Castle. Ghana. Port unspecified. When you search the transatlantic slave ship database for ships that departed from places near and along the Cape Coast, with the principal destination of Jamaica, you find records for 762 voyages, carrying a total of 225,799 enslaved people, with 200,135 surviving the journey. So, in summary... We have records that tell us Senegalese and Ghanaian people might have lived in Louisiana, but it doesn't mean that they definitely did. Dr. Harris warned me when we spoke. When it comes to these records, there's a lot of certainty mixed with a lot of uncertainty. Knowing where a ship departed from in Africa does not necessarily tell you where the people on the ship came from. And knowing where a ship landed doesn't necessarily tell you where the passengers of the ship were ultimately purchased. And because of this, information about the ethnicities of enslaved people was thought to be lost. Up until recently, historians assumed we'd never know where enslaved people actually came from. Why don't we start with, uh, why don't you introduce yourself and so and the camera's over there. Okay, well, <laughs> my name is Gwendolyn Midlow Hall. This is Gwendolyn Midlow Hall. She's 90 years old. She's a historian. She specializes in the history of enslaved people in Louisiana. Dr. Hall is a trailblazer when it comes to diaspora studies. In 2016, she was formally interviewed by her son. And I'm very proud to be interviewed by my son, Dr. Haywood Hall. About her life's work. Hall's father was a lawyer in New Orleans in the 1930s. When I was about 15... He hired me to work in his office, and he had me doing title searches. She dug through courthouse records, mortgages, who owns what, that sort of thing. And so he took me to some courthouses, and I was looking around, and I saw all these documents written in French. And so I was thinking, gee, that's interesting. Why are all these documents written in French, and what do they mean? But... She was 15, and she didn't speak French. Then she grew up, went to school, studied history and African-American studies, got involved in the civil rights movement, and ultimately became a professor. 
it wasn't until the 1970s that she went back to that courthouse where she did title research so many years before. And when my father was dying, and I, I came down to visit him, and then I would go to the courthouses and look at the documents, which by then I could read in French and Spanish, and they looked quite fascinating to me. And I seemed to have a lot of things there that nobody knew about. What Dr. Hall had found were court records with some new information. In 1795, a group of enslaved people tried to rebel against Spanish rule. The rebellion was suppressed, and several rebels were killed, and others were tried in court. When they called slaves up to testify, they were asking them what was their nation. And a lot of them identified their African ethnicity. Ethnicity. Not where they boarded a ship, but where they were from. And I found this testimony, and I thought, well, maybe there might be other documents that also identify the origins of these Africans. And I started to look, and I found documents that went back to 1771. And they were just full, not just full of information about the African origins of the slaves, but a whole lot of other things about the slaves. And so began Gwendolyn Midlow Hall's life's work. She spent over 15 years searching for records, decoding them, and organizing information, along with help from other historians and experts, to assemble the most complete picture possible of every known enslaved person in the Gulf Coast region. When I saw all of the names, I decided this is really important. We really have to collect all of the names that we see on these documents. And a number of guys said, what do you want to do that for? We're just interested in statistics. I said, well, you may be interested only in statistics, and I'm interested in statistics too, but I'm also interested in human beings and what they were like, including what their names were and how they were related to each other. And they said, that'll slow you down. I said, well, it'll just have to slow me down. Dr. Hall has recovered records for over 100,000 enslaved people. And of those, she has ethnicities identified for just under 9,000. Many are from the Congo, but she also identified more than 2,500 Africans confirmed to be from different tribes from Senegambia. So, Kayla, when you started this whole process, you weren't completely confident that you could know where enslaved people were from. So how did you feel once you found out this information? I mean, there's something so moving and validating about unearthing information about enslaved people's personhood. They were people with tribes and communities and, of course, cultures. And knowing their names makes me really reflect on just how resilient they were. And what does this mean for your journey to connect Jambalaya with Jolof? To me, it means that we're close. We know that West Africans, specifically those from countries like Senegal and Ghana, had a huge presence in the South. But that doesn't mean that those Africans were eating and cooking jollof rice or adapting it to become jambalaya. By confirming that the right people were in the right place at the right time, it feels like I've confirmed it's possible for jollof to evolve into jambalaya. But in order for that to be true, 
the right ingredients have to be there also. And so we do have a fairly good record of what enslaved people ate. I mean, for instance, cornmeal was a big part of the diet, root vegetables, because there were gardens. This is Joanne Hippolyte. She's a curator at the National Museum of African American History and Culture, a fairly new museum that's part of the Smithsonian. The museum highlights some of the most horrific history in the slave trade and experiences of Black Americans. But it also highlights the historical examples of resilience and glory. Joanne has spent time curating the African-American Foodways exhibit in the museum. And she says we do have some information about what enslaved people ate. We get most of our sources of information for what enslaved African-Americans ate from things like record keeping that plantation owners did, right? A food that they bought and distributed among enslaved people. Enslaved people ate pork, ate lots of corn, and a variety of other ingredients, depending on their geographic location, or more importantly, who their slave owner was. And if you were working in, you know, the Northeast uh, and you were in somebody's kitchen cooking um, in a, a fairly well-off house, you would have had access to more European cuisine, you know, because you, you were an enslaved person working within a kitchen space and the food goods that Europeans ate would have been part of your lifestyle as well. Joanne says, we know about ingredients, but we won't necessarily have records for how those ingredients were put together in a meal. During this time... Enslaved people weren't necessarily a literate population, so it's an oral tradition. And so we rely a lot on on anecdotal information, on written narratives that were written by people during that particular period of time, like explorers. And those people don't always know the truth either. The way Joanne describes it is almost like solving a puzzle. Like, you get piecemeal information here and there, and you use it to sort of triangulate a theory. So we're pinpointing information from lots of different sources, and what we're finding isn't always leading us to some sort of identifiable answer, you know, one answer that solves the whole picture. Instead, what we get are a lot of leads, right? Things that indicate things. So we know that there are people from the Senegambia region and regions surrounding Ghana that live in the Gulf Coast throughout slavery. So the question now becomes what ingredients they used to cook in the Gulf Coast. We know enslaved people had access to vegetables from gardens, and depending on who their slave masters were, they might have had seafood from the Gulf Coast. And we know they had rice. And the history of rice in the U.S. is extremely intertwined with African slavery. The Carolinas during the colonial period, they're major cash crop was rice. That's what they became known for. That's what enslaved labor was brought in for. She's talking about Carolina gold rice, the real agricultural moneymaker for the Carolinas in colonial times. But Carolina gold rice actually comes from West Africa, a species of rice that has been farmed in wetlands by Africans for thousands of years. The low country of the Carolinas had this ideal atmosphere for this kind of farming but colonists didn't have the skill set to farm it. West Africans did. Africans from Senegambia, who had generations of institutional knowledge of wetland rice farming, they were brought to the Carolinas in the late 17 and early 1800s. And they were actually more expensive to buy because of this knowledge. And plantation owners, they got rich from it. The rice boom in the Carolinas was big. Rice was exported all across the country, so it became readily available throughout the Deep South. 
and it was a relatively cheap way to feed enslaved people. Rice is now this huge part of the American cuisine, and I don't think it's a stretch to say that we owe it to the expertise of the enslaved Senegambian rice farmers. The diet of the United States was shaped, and the Carolinas amassed extreme wealth on the backs of slave labor. I'm triangulating a theory. I've proven Senegambian and Ghanaian people lived in Louisiana. I've proven they had access to rice and vegetables and protein. So I think, okay, what else do jambalaya and jollof have in common? They're both one-pot meals with rice, vegetables, and meat or seafood. But what's extremely important, the thing that made me feel the connection so deeply in the first place, they're both made from a rich tomato base. And that's when I realized I had a tomato problem. Tomatoes are native to Central America. Now, they make their way to Europe via Spanish and Portuguese explorers in the mid-16th century. Europeans have tomatoes, and Europeans colonized Africa. So Africa must have tomatoes as well, right? Well, during the slave trade, there's actually no record of that being true. The first record of a tomato in Africa is from 1863, and it's in a travelogue titled Wanderings in West Africa from Liverpool to Fernando Po. It describes a meal in Accra in which tomatoes were an ingredient in palava sauce. This meal was actually served by a British colonist, but it was described as a reflection of the local African cuisine. We can assume that tomatoes were grown and eaten in Africa for some years before this sauce surfaces in Accra, but it couldn't have been too long before this. We know European explorers and colonizers had a presence in Africa for centuries, and they documented what they saw, especially in agriculture. Tomatoes are nowhere to be found in the records. Well, not until that palava sauce in 1863, and the slave trade had technically ended over 50 years before that. If tomatoes appear in Africa in the mid-1800s, they wouldn't have been part of a quintessential West African dish early enough. That means a tomato rice dish probably didn't survive a transatlantic journey, slavery, and end up in the bellies of Louisianans hundreds of years later. To confirm my suspicions, I looked to see if I could find the origin of chebujen. Remember, we think of this as the grandparent of jollof rice. So turns out, there is an origin story. It feels more like legend than fact, but the story goes that there is a cook, a woman named Penda Umbe, who was a house cook in the coastal city of St. Louis, Senegal, working in the home of the French colonial governor in the 19th century. She created the dish by combining fresh fish with rice, which she used because of a barley shortage. And she also mashed cherry tomatoes into the dish, which seemed to please the taste of the colonial higher-ups. Other cooks around town heard of her recipe and began cooking rice with tomatoes and fish in all of the big houses of St. Louis. The dish is even called Jebuchen Penda Umbe, in honor of its alleged creator. And that would mean that Jebuchen, the grandparent dish of jollof rice, it was created after the slave trade was pretty much over. Most likely, what happened is jambalaya developed because a lot of forces came together to make it happen. 
African labor made rice widely available and cheap, and there were French and Spanish culinary influences in the Deep South that, let's face it, very clearly could have come together to form some sort of jambalaya-like recipe. I hate that that's the answer to this question, that the colonizers, the slave owners, that they are probably contributors to the development of this recipe that's so essential to African-American culture. But that doesn't mean that there's no link to Africa. A rice dish simply wouldn't have made it to the heart of Louisiana culture without the skill and cultivation of rice by West Africans in the Carolinas. And it also means that somehow these two dishes, jambalaya and jollof rice, evolved in separate places on entirely opposite sides of the world, in parallel with each other, and end up looking almost identical at almost the exact same time. Which I think is beautiful in its own way. So, Kayla, after all of this, I'm, I'm going to ask you, how do you feel about the outcome? I mean, you were really determined to solidify this connection, and what we found is a little bit of the opposite. It is somewhat disappointing. And yet, the discovery is beautiful in itself. These dishes both have such a big cultural influence. And the fact that both of these dishes emerged along similar timelines signifies this parallel identity that exists between Africans and Black Americans. Even with the diaspora splintering the connections, even with such a horrific period of history, we've managed to make these incredible dishes that somehow reflect one another. And you know, Joanne Hippolyte did say something to me that I think puts it nicely. Everyone wants to know who started it. And I think when I get that question, I always want to also dig for deeper and ask, why do you need to know? know, Like, what are you looking for in the need to sort of understand who started it? And I think that part of that is because we want to make these very strong connections to our heritage. We want our strong connections to Africa in particular, and um, African-Americans want to be known as producers of things because so much of our history has been wiped away, so much of our history is unknown. The ugly truth is that colonization is inextricable from the way food and culture develops. It just does have an impact. What we want is this beautiful anecdote of this African resilience through impossibly hard times. But I do actually think that that's exactly what this is. Kayla Stewart's story comes to us from Feet in Two Worlds, a project that brings the work of immigrant journalists and journalists of color to public radio, podcast, and online media. Kayla also reported a version of this story for Civil Eats, a nonprofit news organization focused on the American food system. Go to civileats.com to learn more. If you want to see some pictures from Kayla's trip to Ghana or learn more information about Gwendolyn Midlow-Hall's work and the Transatlantic Slave Trade Database, well, we've put that up on our website for you. That's www.americastestkitchen.com slash proof. Go check it out. Oh, and if you like proof, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen so you'll get new episodes as soon as they drop. And while you're there, why not leave us a rating or write us a review? It really helps other people find the show. Proof is hosted and produced by me, Bridget Lancaster. Our executive producer is Caitlin Kelleher. Sarah Joyner is our producer, associate producer, Caroline Rickert. Scoring, sound design, and mixing by Matt Boynton of Ultraviolet Audio. Brian Campbell of Signal Sounds composed our theme music. 
Additional music by Kyle Forrester and Jordan Pearson. Post-production support from Hen Margolis. Our production manager is Diane Knox. Fact-checking and additional research by Kaya Williams. Jack Bishop is the Chief Creative Officer of America's Test Kitchen. David Nussbaum is our CEO. Thanks again to our sponsors, Bob's Red Mill, Kohler, Chef Steps, and OXO. Proof is a production of America's Test Kitchen. I'm here in the studio with my colleague, Molly Birnbaum, and she's the editor-in-chief of America's Test Kitchen Kids. Hey, Molly. Hey, Bridget. Thanks for having me. (laughs) You bet. Well, why don't you tell us a little bit more about America's Test Kitchen Kids? Yeah, for sure. So America's Test Kitchen Kids is pretty much exactly what it sounds like. All of the great, reliable recipes and cooking content of America's Test Kitchen, but reimagined for kids. And we just launched a new Young Chefs Club subscription box kids receive a themed box filled with kid-tested recipes, hands-on activities and experiments, and other super fun creative stuff. Sounds great. Can you give me, uh, I don't know, an example of some of the experiments that you might receive in one of those Young Chef Club boxes? I can actually do you one better, Bridget. I've actually brought an assistant with me to the studio today. This is Layla. Hi. (laughs) Hi, Layla. (laughs) Welcome. Thank you. So today we're going to explore the science of crispy versus crunchy, two super important textures and two of the most popular food textures for snacks. This is part of a science experiment for our January Young Chefs Club texture box. So we're going to start. You guys both have some chips, classic potato chips and tortilla chips. Do you think you can tell the difference between crispy and crunchy using just your ears, just the sound that you hear when you bite into those chips? Uh, maybe. I don't know. We'll find out. All right. Let's get into it. So I'm going to eat the potato chip first. I think this one is crispy. Crispy, why? Because it's more delicate and more, like, easier to break. Okay. Great. Want to try the other one? Yeah. Okay, so this one is the tortilla chip. (laughs) What does that one sound like to you? I think that the tortilla chips were more... um, thick and I think they were crunchy because they sounded like lower pitch in my mouth. Yeah, they sounded like my brother is yelling at each other. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, the potato chips sounded crispier because it sounded like more high-pitched in my mouth and it sounded like my guinea pig, kind of, <laughs> like um, squeaking and stuff because it was more high-pitched. Yeah, that's totally right. One thing that scientists agree on with crispy and crunchy foods is that they sound different when we eat them. And so you are are right. The potato chip is crispy, whereas the tortilla chip is crunchy. And in the science experiment in the box, we go into that in a bunch of different ways, including measuring the force it takes to break one of these chips. But what scientists have found is that people describe foods that make higher-pitched sounds as crispy and foods that make lower pitch sounds as crunchy. This was great. And thanks, Layla. Thank you to Molly. 
And if you want to get this experiment and lots of other great recipes and activities for the young chef in your life, well, then head over to atkkids.com proof. Use code ATKKIDS10 at checkout for 10% off your first box. Hey, Layla, what's your favorite chip? Um, which flavor? Any kind. I like salt and vinegar. 